Amen. Can we thank these guys for leading us in worship as they move their way back to their seats? And thank you guys for worshiping alongside of them. I could hear you singing, and I, I love that. Hebrews chapter 7 is where we are. And as you're turning there, uh, I'll let you know that uh, before I was here, I was at a church and I taught them pretty consistently. I came to teach pretty consistently there because the pastor had stepped away from the pulpit at one point and uh, he needed to be away for six weeks because he was having back surgery. And he came to me after the six weeks that I had preached through something and he uh, said to me, Chad, uh, you did a, a nice job, which is always kind. The word nice. Is there a more demeaning word? You did okay. Um, he, he then said to me, but sometimes you need to let the congregation come up for air. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, praise God. Uh, and he went on to say that if you're too deep in the text, we had this very odd conversation in his office that day. And... Uh, he was just pointing out, in his opinion of preaching, which is the incorrect one, that, that you should have weeks that are just a little easier on the people. Look, I typically don't do those, and I need you to know, that ain't today. So, we're not there. Hebrews chapter 7, as you're turning there, I want you to look to the people to your left and to your right, and I want you to tell them the most famous person that you have ever met. Who is the most famous person that you have ever met? And if you think that your neighbor has a really good person, I want you to raise your hand because I want to ask who your famous person person is. So anybody. All right, what, what you got right here, Jesse? You should have just left your hand out. Uh, yes, ma'am. Jesus, I, I love a good Jesus juke. That's great. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Sarah, you had your hand up. Buzz Aldrin. Okay, great. But So, Sarah, she is a, a rocket scientist. So, that's cool. Like, she literally works for NASA. She's a space doctor. So, that's cool. Anybody else? Yes, over here, Nikki. Mike Hampton. Mike Hampton. From the Astros. Okay. Guys, look, I'm trying with this baseball stuff. It is hard. Uh, uh, okay, anybody? I'm a sports fan. Uh, okay, what in the back right here? You met Sha Shaquille O'Neal. Okay, anybody else? Yes. Case Keenum. Case Keenum, okay. All right. so the quarterback for about 17 NFL teams. Uh, it, yes, Jordan. Okay, the, these are all. We love athletes. Okay, from, it's fitting that since it's WrestleMania weekend, uh, the most famous people that I've ever met are all professional wrestlers. There was a dark season in my life called the late 90s where I would camp out for wrestling tickets uh, so I could go and sit on the front row. And I uh, eventually, uh, that meant that the show would come to town. And when I mean show, I mean these... It, sports entertainers and there was one evening where Monday Nitro anyone remember that Monday Nitro that came off so it's going to be in Chattanooga and some friends of mine and I had our tickets and we had a really good time at the show but we heard that the wrestlers were at one of the hotels downtown so we like a bunch of weirdos went and sat in the lobby to meet them and I met the nature boy Ric Flair there you may not be familiar woo <laughs> Good day of church. All right. I was on an airplane one time, and as I got to my, as I'm walking to my seat, I looked to my right, and uh, a man that was called in his heyday, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, was sitting in first class because he's a millionaire. And that's a joke. But as he's sitting there, I think, oh, that's Ted DiBiase. I need to talk to him. I don't know why, but as the plane landed, I noticed him walking through the airport uh, far, far ahead of me. So I took off sprinting to catch him. I took a break, and then I sprinted some more. And when I got to Ted DiBiase, it hit me. I don't know what to say to this man. So all that I said to a man who had worn spandex for his entire career was, I appreciate your work. <laughs> 
I was at a GNC. <laughs> the question you're asking in your head now is, Chad, why were you ever in a GNC? I was buying throat tea. And <laughs> such a weird thing to say. And I looked to my right... And there stood, uh, the wrestler you're going to be the most familiar with in 2019, uh, John Cena. Like, I saw him. He says, you can't see him. I did. He he was right there. When we get to Hebrews chapter 7, we have a meeting that's pretty interesting. And I want us to look at this. It's a tricky passage. But we're going to try to uh, deal with that. And as we deal with that, I want you to know there's no knockout blow here. We're going 12 rounds with Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to see what happens. It wins, we lose, but we'll give it our best. Verse 7, for this Melchizedek. We'll start in 19 and verse 6. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. Because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, a king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means the king of righteousness. This being Melchizedek. His name means the king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men will die. Men who will die receive a tenth. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who received a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Now if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear? Said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For the, for the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah and Moses said nothing about the tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on legal regulation about physical descent but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled. Because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need. A holy innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the priests do, as high priests do. 
first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath, which came after, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. I'm going to pray that the Lord speaks to us through this text. And I want you to bow your head and I want you to ask the Lord to do the same thing. Ask God to speak to you as we work through this today. Jesus, you are good. And I pray that what we deal with in this text will help us to know you better, to trust you more, to see you for who you are, to know that what you have given us in your word is good and that your word would speak to us not just today, but we would realize that you speak to us daily because you are interceding for us daily. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus and everyone says, Amen. One of the questions that you have on your worship guide is this. It, you read through. The last major question is, why should this matter to me? And the reason that this should matter to you is really summed up. If we're going to draw a circle around the, vo- the verse in this passage that gives meaning to the rest of it, the verse that is at the core of our teaching today, it is Hebrews 7, verse 25, where it reads this in the English Standard Version. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, we can get lost in the weeds of the difficulty of a character like Melchizedek when we read through the Scripture. But we don't need to miss the reason for Melchizedek because it seems to be confusing. Melchizedek is not the end goal. The end goal is for us to be people who know and love Jesus more because of his death and his resurrection which give us hope. Again, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, with that short answer in mind, we can look at the other questions that we deal with. The first question is, who is this Melchizedek person and what can I know about him? And the answer to that question, from me as your pastor to you as our congregation is, we don't really know. Now, we've got some guesses. And we actually have some helpful guesses. We have some helpful information that helps us grasp who this Melchizedek is. The first of those is that he is a, this is a possibility, that he is a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. So we see Jesus in the uh, in the New Testament, and we're very familiar with who Jesus is and how Jesus works, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. There are numerous times as we look through the Old Testament that we have what theologians call uh, Christophanies, where we see pictures of Jesus standing in the midst of the people. We see one of those in the book of Joshua, chapter 5. We see one of those at the burning bush. Jesus displaying himself. And there are many who believe that Melchizedek is that, that he is a pre-incarnate Christ right there. He is Christ standing amidst, among the people, standing there taking the offering of Abraham. However, because the word order is used in verse 17, we can shift from the possibility of him being a pre-incarnate Christ to this probability. Melchizedek, because we use the word order, it lets us know that there is something that leads to another thing. And from what we know about the priesthood, not just the Melchizedekian priesthood, which may or not may not be the word, but we'll go with it. The comparison of it and the Levitical priesthood, both of them would transfer power of that position based on one thing. It would be based on death. So if you're Aaron, 
who is the first Levitical priest that we see in the Old Testament. When he passes away, his son becomes the new great high priest. When he passes away, the next son becomes the new great high priest. When we look at this text in light of what's taken place uh, in the book of Genesis up to our meeting with Melchizedek in chapter 14 of Genesis, and we look at that alongside of a, a passage like Numbers chapter 24, there are many who would argue and believe that Melchizedek is of the family of Noah, which is from the family of Adam. And that when you look at what takes place with Abraham, you have Shem. We're familiar with the name. Noah had sons. One of those was Shem. He is the first high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And there are some who can, when they spend time and they work through it, they interpret the Bible to say that Shem is this person. The idea in Melchizedek, though, it's a title that predates this Levitical priesthood. And we can look through these texts and we can get to the point where that is Shem. And there's even some lineup when you look at the passage. You've got him meeting in chapter 7, this king of peace, king of righteousness. And Abraham had just gone and dealt with this area of Sodom, which was an antithesis of peace and righteousness. So when you look at Melchizedek, you have someone, this first high priest, if it is Shem, who is related to two people. He is related to Abraham through generations. He is also, according to the chronology, he is related to the one who was the king of Sodom. So you have this war that's been made between the two and the one who can make right what's taking place between the two is not Abraham who won the is the one who between the two offers peace and righteousness we so that leads us to what is definite about this passage we have the possibility that this is pre-incarnate Christ we have the probability that this is someone who is from a family and we see this passing down generation to generation to generation to the point where it gets to Jesus. You've heard of him. If you haven't heard of him, let's have a conversation at the end of worship. When it gets to Jesus, we see that he is the priest in the line of the order of Melchizedek forever. Why? Well, we do know that Jesus died. That's how my friend can say that she has met with Jesus. He has died However, we are not people who simply celebrate a faith of a dead demigod. We have a God who is completely resurrected in Jesus. So when we spend time in, oh, not keep, stay here. When we spend time in these passages, what we're finding is that God has definitely revealed himself through the person of Melchizedek to give us Jesus because Jesus, though he did not have children, also lives forever. And that is an important, crucial point to what we're going to do today. Who is this Jesus? Or who is this Melchizedek? He is the king of Salem. The king of righteous. The word Salem there, we eventually get the word Jerusalem from it. So the person that we know as Melchizedek is these two things. And we definitely can see this. When we find and see Jesus in the scriptures, he is claiming over and over at the Sermon on the Mount, he is claiming through his death and he is claiming through his resurrection that he is the king of both peace and righteousness. So this is at the very least a picture of Jesus. They had something similar to what we have in this world. The idea of a separation of church and state. If you're a political buff, you know the definition of that. If you're not a political buff, I can read that for you. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In the world of Abraham, the people who surrounded him, those who had kings, that king, for whoever that people happened to be, he represented God to the people. That's why we can look at Egyptian history and see that there's this notion of them being worshipped as gods. They did not just have gods. They had a plurality of gods that we know as what? Starts with a poly, ends with a theism. The seventh grade social studies, people, let's roll. 
But there were something even more specific. It was, it was a tiered theism. This passage says to us about this Melchizedek, he's the priest of God most high, because among all of the foreign gods and the false gods, this one who is representing God most high, he stands above those. Now, we as New Testament Christians in 2019, we don't believe in polytheism until we look at the things that we purchase and we consider the way that we treat our children. I mean, every one of us have gods in our back seats whose feet can't even touch the floor. When this passage talks about this Melchizedek being the king of peace and the king of righteousness, we are seeing that God in Melchizedek and in the line of Melchizedek that will bring us Jesus... That God has given us someone who has united what needed to be divided through history. God said to the people of Israel, you don't need a king, you big dummies. That's a paraphrase possibly from the message. You don't need a king. You don't need a king. You don't need a king. Because I'm your king. When he eventually gives them a king, the very first one does the dumbest thing ever because God has separated the priesthood from the monarchy. But this king, Saul, who was a very important person in the Bible and at times a moron chose to act as a priest when he was not. When we look into this text and we consider who Melchizedek is and more importantly what Melchizedek provides for us in Jesus, we see that this idea of being able to be a righteous, peaceful king who is the priest of God all of it comes together in him. So we have an idea as to who Melchizedek is. Lord of righteousness. Lord of peace. That's who we see in the Old Testament. That's who we see in Psalm 110 that Brent read from earlier. That's who we see in Genesis chapter 14. If you're just one of those who likes to read through the Bible and, and wiggle through it. And I would encourage you to do so. That's who we see. Next we see what he did. Verses 4 through 10. Go there with me. Consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from the brothers and sisters though they have also descended from Abraham. Now wait a second. That's confusing. We have to unconfuse that. Keep reading verse 6. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. He's pointing out that Melchizedek is different than what we historically understand as an Old Testament priest. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. And not only does he collect, we see this text saying about this one who could bring together peace and righteousness, this king priest, that he is superior to Abraham. And if you're a Jewish here, that's really strange for you to even... What do you mean he's greater than Abraham? Abraham's our father. He had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. Left foot. So let's just praise the Lord. But this Melchizedekian priest, this title... The inferior was blessed by him. Again, we see this echo throughout the Bible of the inferior being blessed by the superior, of the greater blessing the lesser, of the better blessing the worse. That's the story of our, our people as followers of Jesus. What did he do? Well, we, we see this in verses 9 and 10. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, this for us can be a little tricky if we're not careful. We're, because honestly, when you look at this passage... You've got this Levitical priesthood who so many of us are familiar with when we think of the Old Testament term and we're saying that there's a priesthood that's more important than that. 
And then we're hearing that this priesthood, this Melchizedekian priesthood, blessed the other. But there are no Levites here. What's he saying in a sense? There are no Levites, there is no Moses, there was no Isaac at this point. The, the Bible has this concept you see through it. It's called covenant identity or covenant solidarity, right? It's the idea that these people, though they may not have been there, they're united to something that took place before them. It, it even runs and floods itself into our, own, our lives and in our walk with the Lord in this way. There is a solidarity that comes with the human race. And that solidarity comes in this, that we, all of us, though none of you knew Adam, you did not know what took place in the garden with Adam and Eve and the nudity and the fig leaf, you weren't there. However, you have a solidarity with him. That is, the curse that was placed upon him was placed upon each and every one of us. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who is the one that reigns forever as the king and priest in the order of Melchizedek, for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, I don't mean you know about Jesus or have heard about Jesus. I don't mean that your grandmother taught you lessons about Jesus with a picture book where Jesus kept looking like Hollywood actors. For those of us who have a faith in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a covenant solidarity as well. That means that we, as God's people, are united with God through the work of Jesus. We're put together in that way. So you look at this text and just, a, a, in a sense, a working knowledge of 7, 1 through 10 gets us to the place of why we should care that we see in 11 through 28 we see God showing the idea of covenant blessing here, which will eventually move. Not the blessing itself, but the concept will move so that those of us who are people of faith are united with God in Christ Jesus. And though in the same way that we were cursed because of our sin, because of the sin of Adam that... that matriculated its way into each of our lives, we are blessed by the death of Jesus, the sinless death of Jesus, that will give life to all of us. For those of us who have a faith in Jesus. Short answer again. We find it in verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. So that lets us know a few things that we can understand about this priesthood. This priesthood of Jesus is secure. So if you're a note taker, that's a good thing. It's actually there, if I'm not mistaken. So it lets us know that Jesus is not from, I'm taking a drink of water. That's what that looks like if you're wondering. Jesus is not from the Aaronic priesthood, verse 11 through 17. Go there with me. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for, unto it the, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have to be for another priest to rise after Melchizedek? So this says to us about the law, the law that was good, the law that was helpful, the law that was beneficial, the law that David loved. It's not enough. So for those of us in here without church background, someone tricked you into coming this morning? You showed up? Your right behavior is not right enough. And for those of us who are good church folk, and you know who you are, you're the people who you're here quasi-regularly, you like to be here. You, you keep attending. The things that have culturally defined your faith are not enough. You were here every Sunday with Mima when you were a child. We weren't here when you were a child at Grace Bible, 14 years old. But you were at church every Sunday with your grandmother, not enough. You don't yell too much, not enough. Your enough never will be enough. 
Jesus, in him, the priesthood is secure. For where there is a change in the priesthood, notice this in verse 12, where there, when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no one had ever served at the altar. Again, talking of the people of Melchizedek. But for those who were in this religious, historical, Levitical order, it is we see this, they keep running to... They did this, and they did this really equates to every year they would offer up sacrifices that were good, and they pointed to something. They were helpful that they would point to that. But what they pointed to did not achieve ultimate hope for us. So you have an Old Testament people who are caught up in this system where daily they're offering up some sacrifices. Yearly they're offering up major sacrifices. And all of these sacrifices, if everything was tied to them just based upon the fact that they were happening, I'm good because I offered this sacrifice that's missing the point of the faith that God has given us in the person of Jesus. That's missing the point of the Old Testament because the Old Testament point is never to get to the place... Where we would say, my right behavior in this situation is good enough. As a matter of fact, when we get to John chapter 2, you have people who are doing that, right? Here's how it works. So you get to John chapter 2, and you've got Jesus going into the temple courtyard. We all know the story that Jesus flips over the potluck tables. The people were super religious, as religious as religious got at that point in history. They were so religious that they were coming from across the world, in effect, to get there to offer up their sacrifices. And initially, this idea of having things to sell on the outskirts was beneficial. I, we always judge it, but there was benefit to it. Because who wants to travel with a goat? When they would get to town where the sacrifice where these animals were being sold on the outskirts if you traveled from afar you would pick up your goat or you would pick up your bird whatever you could afford and you would come to the holy to the great high priest or to the high priest of his day he would offer that sacrifice up but what took place with that religious system is what takes place with every religious system it corrupted and as it corrupted, it got closer and closer to the inner temple. So, you have all of these people who are going to offer their sacrifices before the Lord. But there was really no sacrifice to the Lord. There was just a routine that they walked through. There was an animal that they held up. They didn't even think about what was taking place with the priest. There was no consideration as to what was happening there. Because when the high priest would offer up the sacrifice, you knew that blood was going to be spilled. And when that blood was spilled, it was supposed to make the human heart think about this. That should have been me. But the people were just throwing birds and goats at people. That should have been me. That's why communion is important. That's why we try to set the pace for what communion will look like in here from whenever we offer it. That's why I encourage you, I rather, I discourage you from standing up immediately. Because when you drink of the, of the cup or when you eat of the bread, what should be running through your mind and what should be running through my mind is, my God, what have I done? That should have been me. When you get to this priesthood, Jesus not being from the Aaronic priesthood, you, you see that the priesthood is secure because in Jesus we have a priest who was faultless. They're having to consider the faults. No one's even thinking about how faulty these priests are. But there, in Jesus we have one who is without fault. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when we have one who arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not based on the legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He, he's not someone's son 
who was simply part of a Levitical priesthood, but we have one in Jesus who has an indestructible life. When this would pass from one priest to the next, it was because their earthly life had been destroyed. And in Jesus, at the moment where we thought he had been destroyed in full, resurrection takes place. We have one with an indestructible life. And because of that, the problem is solved. The law, for all it did, does not solve the problem of sin. There has to be something greater. And these guys, because these priests we see in the scriptures, they can't deal with their own sin. The law of the Levitical priesthood was weak and needed to be replaced because, like I said, behavior doesn't correct sin. The, look, and I want you to hear me say, your Bible helps you live a certain type of life. It should. God gives us guidance from it. But the direction of the Bible helps you only after the, the deliverer of the Bible has healed you. It's the latter before the former, the greater before the lesser. So you can clean it up and shine it up and make it look really nice for everyone else. But apart from God himself meeting you in the person of Jesus as the king of righteousness and king of peace, you are hopeless. The law is not terrible. Galatians says it's a guardian that directs us. But in Christ we are sons of God who now defines us. It's all hard to grasp. I said, look, all of this is hard. Look, I don't know if I've understood a word I've said. I don't know how you could. But that's why we push you not to just talk about this in 35, 40 minutes on here on, in here on Sunday mornings. That's why I've got people, if you're a guest here, they should be asking you to be part of life groups so that you can have a conversation about this. Because at the center, that's why we have women's Bible study and, and men's Bible study to gather together to talk about the manifestations and implications of this. Do you think we just want to push you to meet with people for the sake of meeting? That's weird because people are weird. But we meet like that because we want to keep saying we have the same center and that center is Jesus. And that center is worth more than my sin. And my desire not to be part of this. Look, I'm not a priest. I, I, when I was in Chattanooga, there, were, there was a lunch that I had with one of our guys. I was preaching a service and each and every Sunday, 35, 40. So I'm in there and we met at a place called Moe's. Now, I know we're in South Texas now and we don't need Moe's. Moe's is a burrito place. But it's really just, it's just kind of generic. It's like a Chipotle, except you don't have to pay for guacamole. <laughs> the interactive part of our program here. Uh, so, I'm having lunch with him, and I'm just kind of laying my heart out for what we're doing, and I'm pushing him to be in a life group. And I said, man, I, I just need you to know. I hope those people that are in our room know I don't have it all together. And he said, oh, we know you don't have it all together. Thank you so much. I'm not a priest, but I get calls when you guys are going to miss church. <laughs> I get we'll not be there today. Oh, that's cool. Knock it out, man. I, I, I get calls, and, and then I'll meet people in random places at CrossFit and Whataburger. Like, they contradict each other, but they're both part of my life. And, <laughs> and they, they want to tell me about their struggles and sins. <laughs> that's cool. I, but I'm not a priest. I'm not your go-between because if I am, you're not going very far. Verse 17. It is witnessed of him, just Jesus. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. If the law makes nothing perfect, my interpretation of it isn't going to make anything perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Through which we draw near to God. That's, we draw near to God through this. Not through our actions. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. 
But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So what's that mean? Because we've got Protestant church background. I've got some other things in here. But for the most part, we understand that being a Christian means this. That we have, we, we word it differently. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. Or we've asked Jesus to come into our hearts. Or we've trusted in Jesus. And if we are wording that well, what that means is that we believe that Jesus died so that I could... Jesus died for my sin so that I could have life forever. Right? We're good with that. But there's more taking place with Jesus. It's not just Him dying and resurrecting in His earthly form... It is that forever on top of forever Jesus lives and he intercedes. Okay. Intercession. It's a big Bible word for prayer. Jesus prays for us as believers. God hates sin. And God hates that we are immersed in it. And as we look through the scriptures, we see that there is condemnation coming to those who are wrapped in eternal sin. Who have not trusted in the provision that God has given us. There is condemnation, there is judgment, there is destruction. There are no positive words. There are no synonyms for Disney World when we come to talk about the afterlife for those who are apart from Jesus. God hates our sin and we are sinners. So something has to take place to correct that. The death and resurrection of Jesus initiate us into the family of God. We are part of God's family. And what keeps us in right relationship with God, because guess what? We still sin. I sinned this morning a lot. What keeps us is that Jesus eternally declares over you and declares over me in the face of my sin, mine, 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 mine. That one's mine. That one belongs to us. That one, we know who he is. We trust, we, he's trusted in me. Jesus says that over you over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Because the moment that he stops, you're doomed. He lives forever, interceding forever. Which means that we can draw near. Do you see what's... Look, for those of you... Who's been with us for more than one week of our time in Hebrews? Awesome. The rest of you judged by me. I'm kidding. I'm completely kidding. I love you. But we have had warning passages. And the recurring theme of the warning passages of Hebrews is what? Don't fall away. Don't drift away. Don't sneak away. Don't walk away. But we see in verse 25 that he lives so you can draw near. His living means you can. You've been given the opportunity. He doesn't just give the opportunity. He gives the the faith to do so. Draw near. He's our ongoing mediator. But as our mediator, it's not just a halfway mediation. Have you ever watched Judge Judy? If you've ever watched Judge Judy, you notice that they don't give those people lawyers. If people stand in front of Judge Judy and her New Jersey accent, and they do not have words to say to that woman. Am I right? 
She just pay them $75,000. I was watching Stranger Things 2. And in Stranger Things 2, Officer Hopper meeting with Eleven. If you're unfamiliar, it's okay. We can work through that. But they're meeting together and he begins to explain to her what compromise is. Right? And in this explanation of compromise, here is what he says to her. He says, compromise means that everybody is halfway happy. Our traditional understanding of a mediator is that. If you're in a civil suit, if you're in some weird law case, everybody needs to be halfway happy. Let's get everyone to settle. Thank God Jesus doesn't do anything halfway. Our mediation is not halfway. It's this declaration, he's mine. She's mine. I love them. I love, I love them in spite of them. They can't sin enough for me to stop wanting them to draw near to me. You belong to me. Jesus is the point of this passage. He's the point of every passage, but we see here he's the point of this one. Finally, we see that he's the perfect priest. And perfect priest we see in verses 26. Go there with me. This is the kind of high priest that we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the priest that we need. So their Levitical system was a tad short of that. No matter how much we tell you that they would always look for the perfect lamb or the perfect sheep or the perfect bird. Those weren't really perfect. You just found the best. (laughs) God has to settle for their best. Look, it's not our worst that sends us away from God forever without Jesus. It's our best. God settles for their best. But Jesus, as the great high priest in line in the order of Melchizedek, who is a king who will reign forever, he is the essence of holy. He is the epitome of all of these things. He is the perfect sacrifice in the way that perfection can be what it is. Jesus is that. He's the perfect priest for us. We know that perfect is not a real thing, no matter how perfect you think your little kid is. Leave them in a room of candy and tell them not to eat any. Our perfection that has been provided for us in Jesus, he's exalted above the heavens. He's separate from sinners. He is unlike the priest that came in the other line. Because he is without fault. He chose to take our fault upon himself. We also see this with the passage that the people are sent, verses 27, 28. He has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Didn't offer up a sheep or a goat or a bull or a bird. He offers up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests. Look at that. The law appoints us in our weakness as high priests, these, these Levitical priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So what's that mean for you and why should you care? Because we are not great high priests. But we are a royal priesthood. We are not tied to the Levitical concept of a priest. We, because of the work of Christ on the cross, are something different. We are a royal priesthood who represent Christ, the eternal King, as long as we live in this life and in the life that is to come. In that while He is declaring that one is mine... We are given opportunity to continually declare that, that He is ours. To 
show light in darkness, to show hope in despair. We represent Jesus. Here's what 1 Peter says. I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but I know who wrote Peter. It's a guy named Peter. He says about me and you, you are a chosen race. Chosen means that God worked this out before the beginning. Okay, a, a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a set-apart nation, a people for his own possession. Mine, 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 mine. That you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's good, that's who we are. And then he tells us what we need to choose. Because in this life full of difficulty and darkness and sin that's at war with us, the writer of 1 Peter says to us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires of the flesh which wage war against your very soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who don't belong to Jesus, honorable. So that when they, <coughs> so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. You are this, so continually choose the second. You are 9 and 10, so choose 11 and 12. We are a priesthood who reflects and represents a great high priest. We are a people who have received hope, who are allowed to display hope. To say that there is light, though everything around us looks dark. To say that there is a conqueror, though we feel completely defeated. To say that we belong to someone who is better. Someone who is the righteous king and a righteous priest forever. That's who Jesus is. So let's live like that knowing that he is confidently saying over you if you're a believer that one's mine that one's mine would you bow your heads with me this morning at the end of our services if you're unfamiliar I'm at the back right hand corner of the room if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus there's hope and it's in Jesus that's it your righteousness, your peace are in Jesus. Your go-between is Jesus. And we would love to have a conversation with you about what it means for you to follow Jesus. To know Jesus, to love Jesus. If you're a believer in this room and you get to verses 11 and 12 and you're like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Come talk to us. We can walk, just take a few steps together thinking through what it means for you to display the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because there's nothing else for you to do until you realize what Christ has done. Finished work. Finished work. And we get to show his completion. We trust you, Lord. You're going to move in our midst even now as we sing. As I pray, you've moved throughout the entirety of our service. We ask it in your powerful name. And everybody in the room says... Amen.